2: wherever podcasts are available. You're listening to Muses. My name is Lynx, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another crossover episode. Muses, She Will Rock You, Volume 5, is this? Yeah. This is like one of my favorite crossovers of all time. Me too. I love doing these so much. And I feel like we have a really good way of choosing the right women or bands to talk about. It just, it's perfect. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm always excited. I feel like when we first started, we were like, maybe like twice a year or something. And now I'm like, I want to do it like every other month. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's a great way to cover the ones that we don't, we can't cover, do a whole episode for. Yeah. like. Exactly. Fifteen minutes feel and that's it, so
2: our last one has been getting a lot of listens. I noticed because Betty Davis passed away mm. so did she
3: really yeah, yeah,- When was that like December? February oh, I thought it was a long longer ago. Than oh, that. that
1: makes me so sad. I'm
3: gonna I have it. no
1: clue. it was
2: very recently, yeah, so. It mm-hmm. was like we put out that episode and then like a month later she passed away. Yeah. What a legend. Yeah, that's the thing. Like there's so many of these incredible women who are still around and just, I just want their stories to get out and people to learn about them if they haven't yet before. there's, It's too late, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But that's a good thing too. I guess with music, it's never too late. But it was
3: February. February? Mm-hmm. February 9th. Yeah.
2: I I was playing her at the bar I work at all night the night before and then I, wow i woke up the next day i was like whoa,
0: whoa.
2: yeah i work at like a wow. rock and roll bar i very rarely put on funk or that type of music but on this night i was just feeling it and yeah it was just a eerie eerie timing yeah and to yeah to have just done the episode and released it like not so long ago was something that's crazy So we always have themes for these. This one, we chose to do background singers. And I think we've chosen some pretty amazing women. Like, I'm
1: excited to hear the stories. Me too. I, you know, this was really, I love this subject, especially when we do these episodes, because it's also a learning moment for me. It's like, oh, background singers. Like, that's something that's just like not, I don't know. It's a moment for me to be like, we should really research that more. Mm-hmm. So it's a great moment. Well, I'll, I'll kick it off because My Lady Comes is definitely one of the first. We are talking about Darlene Love. And she's cited, and this is based off some research and then a wonderful documentary I watched called 20 Feet from Stardom. Um, which won the Oscar that year, but that's just a fun tidbit. Um, But she was one of the first ever accredited to the modern rock background singer movement. So it just seemed really important to cover her on this special Muses Will Rock You episode. So let's go ahead and kick it off with this unsung hero. Get it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Darlene Wright was born in Los Angeles on July 26, 1941. Her father was a minister and she started singing in the choir at age 10, which we hear quite a bit. It's just really cool, like the connection on that. Um, But while singing in in the choir, she started getting the attention of the choir director and brought her into something called the Music Mart which is like singing on broadcasts. But her most notable group she was a part of was called the Blossoms, which was made up of high school level girls when they first formed. Um, We'll talk more about them in a little bit. But a common practice during that time was if you were an artist who couldn't quite hit the notes, they would just bring someone else to do it for you. I think that's an interesting trade. I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Write songs in
3: your vocal range.
1: Hey, literally they did this in musical films like all the time. Like, for example, not to put my musical hat on for a second, but I am. Natalie Wood wanted to sing her own parts in uh, West Side Story. Story. Yes. She recorded them. They were not good. So the studio like dubbed it anyway. So they did have Audrey
3: Hepburn in My Fair Lady as well. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yes, I did. So it's a pretty common practice during the fifties and sixties. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it it was like auto tune before (laughs) that existed. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um so in nineteen sixty-two, Phil Spector has a group called The Crystals. But they all couldn't make it to record in time. So instead of waiting like a rational person, he just hires the Blossoms to record the track He's a Rebel with Darlene singing the primary lead. That means when the Crystals go and perform that song to those screaming fans in the show, it's a completely lip-synced performance.
3: (laughs) That's embarrassing.
1: I don't know how they pulled off the technology of that, to be quite honest. Like, Like, they didn't have the equipment we have today to fake it in, like, a halftime show. So... I'm not sure how these screaming fans were like, yeah, that sounds real. But anyway, that's not my business. So this song became a hit and Phil Spector decides, you know, I'm going to sign Darlene. But also like the films that we were talking about in the 50s and 60s, they never do play fair, do they? First, Phil Spector changes her name from Darlene Wright to Darlene Love. Second, she begins to record a whole damn album with him. And then third, she cuts her first single called He's Sure the Boy I Love. But then Darlene, thinking this is like the debut single of her career, is walking down the street one day and hears her song on the radio. But it's credited to the crystals. Mm -hmm. Jesus, that is so unfair. No, it's so unfair. So she's pissed, and rightly so. But despite all this... Her group, The Blossoms, did some iconic background work, including Monster Mash, which is. Oh, wait, cool. what? are yeah, really? we?
2: I, I had no idea.
1: idea. Yeah. And then they did Frank Sinatra's That's Life. And then a Cheech and Chong song called Basketball Jones. <laughs> I've That's it was an fun. eclectic group yeah, of songs. Wide there. range. Yeah. It shows range. It shows range. Um, but. Darlene would eventually be known for one song in particular. And one of the best ways to get yourself out there, at least in America, is to do a Christmas song. Mm. So she recorded the original Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home. That's all Darlene love. And I think the blossoms are in the background. I got some facts for this song. So Darlene was shown a demo of the song over the phone. Originally, Ronnie Spector and Ronettes were supposed to sing it, but Darlene brought the much-needed emotion to it. The song went on this compilation album Phil Spector was pulling together. They even rewrote the song as Johnny, Baby, Please Come Home. <laughs> But we don't really know that version these days. It's the Christmas one that's stuck around. Uh, the song was not an immediate success, but over time it would become a Christmas staple and Mariah Carey would cover it and U2 would cover it. I also read she helped with some of the vocals on the U2 version, which is pretty cool. And then mm-hmm. finally, the song was also a staple on the Dave Letterman show and she would perform it on the last show before Christmas every year while it that's was cute, still going on. Yeah, it's really cute. So the 1960s into the 1970s, early 1970s, I should say, she is singing back up here and there with the Blossoms, but something happened in the rest of the 70s into the 80s, where she's just started doing music part time. And by 1982, she's actually a maid in Beverly Hills. And one day she's cleaning and she hears her song, Christmas, baby, please come home. She takes that as a sign that it's time to stop hiding and go back into music. Aww. And her first venture, this is really cute, her first venture is on Broadway, where there's a juke, jukebox musical called Leader of the Pack, and it features songs by Ellie Greenwich, which Ellie she sung Ellie Greenwich songs. So conveniently, Darlene Love gets to play herself in that <laughs> musical. What that's a so cool! circle moment. yeah, Isn't that cute? She was a narrator for it. I think that was her role. She was a narrator. Um, but really cool. It also helps that her Christmas song is actually picking up in the 80s too. So that helps her get some opportunities in this decade. She records an a- album. Uh, she was a backup singer for Cher- Cher's tour along with her sister. So anytime you get to share the stage with Cher, I think that's one of the greatest honors this world has ever seen oh yes because <laughs> she's like a living legend um so in the 19 the 1990s decade she writes a new christmas song called all alone on christmas and it's included in the soundtrack for home alone 2 Lost in new york jingle all the way love actually in 1993 she goes i'm not done with you little bitch phil specter and sues his ass and she nice. gets unpaid royalties as she should Aww. Good for her. Yeah. It it took a little bit, but you know what? She got the confidence. She said, you know what? Fuck off and sued him and won. Um. And then in 1998, she put out a biography. So let's wrap this up and talk about her legacy. So it's no surprise that when you have a successful Christmas song, you are now in the Christmas music market full time. So this includes her doing a Christmas show in New York City every year. And I want to end on this little happy note. In 2011, she was finally recognized for her decades-long challenging music career and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Good for oh, her. Yes, which is rightly deserved. And yeah. that's, Darlene, that's a snapshot of darling Love. Wow.
2: It's such an interesting one because... She's a background singer because you don't know about her, but she wasn't a background singer at all. She was like the lead singer. You mm-hmm. just didn't know it. Yeah. Right. Also, like, what the hell, Phil? Why don't you just create a group with her in the front or there's the Blossoms and release it as theirs because it is theirs. Does it surprise me? No. No. <laughs> no Not but... one bit. Yeah. But it's The sucks. logic there, though. For sure. Wow. I'm so happy to hear that she got the strength to fight back and claim her
1: stake yeah especially after going something i mean i would label it as traumatic as your first single getting stolen from right under you supposed to be your big break like that's enough to shatter someone but she Mm -hmm. just like picked herself up and she made the career that she wanted to make and that takes guts for
2: sure yeah i can't imagine like hearing your song on the radio it being a huge hit Everyone talking about it, loving it, and no one knowing like that's me. It's me, Mm -hmm. it's not them. I what a crazy thing. Like that would mess me up. I'm Mm -hmm. glad she sued him.
3: He deserved it. One hundred
2: percent. Who's next? Is it you? I'm gonna go next. Okay. And I'm gonna talk about a woman named Claudia Lanier. She is also featured in the 20 Feet from Stardom documentary. Such a fantastic documentary, like you said. Um, mm-hmm. very. Uh, and there's so many other background singers in that, too, that like have great stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that we could do episodes on, for sure. But I chose Claudia because not only is she a, an amazing background singer, she's also been a muse for more than one artist. So... But Kaladia was born Kaladia Joy Offley in Rhode Island in 1946. I couldn't actually find her exact birth date online, but 1946 is up there, so we know the year. She got the name Lanier because her mother married a Navy man when she was young, and because she had a stepdad who was in the Navy, she kind of grew up all over Providence, they would move basses and all of that both claudia's mother and grandmother were very musical and from a young age they would all sing gospel songs together ah the
1: tie-in.
2: yes and claudia really says that she learned all about harmonizing by singing with her mother and grandmother i have a quote from her she said I didn't really come up in the black church. I grew up Catholic, but we always kept our roots. My mother and grandma taught me the standards like the Lord's Prayer and His Eye is on the Sparrow, those types of songs. So yeah, like so many others we talk about honed her skill as a young Mm -hmm. age on these beautiful gospel.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to get your harmonies
2: in. For sure. Yeah. Of course, in her teenage years, her music's taste would shift, and she really loved all the popular artists on the radio. Um, I saw that she was really into Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight, Ike and Tina. She loved all the girl groups as well, and she really did imagine being part of a girl group one day. Music was always a huge passion for her, But she also had another big passion, which was languages. During school, she studied music theory and took piano lessons. And then in high school, she did join her school's choir program. But at the time, she kind of saw music as a passion and she didn't really fully expect it to really go anywhere career wise. And she harbored goals instead of becoming a UN translator. And I think she focused on French in school, but she could speak multiple languages. She really loved language.
1: That's impressive.
2: Yeah. So when Claudia was in her late teens, her stepfather retired and the whole family ended up moving to California, which, of course, would change Claudia's life forever. Now she was in the meat of things musically. So her priorities then began to shift towards the music scene out there. After she graduated high school, she joined a soul group called the Superbs, and she was the front woman in it. They got pretty popular, and they released one single in 1968 called One Bad Habit. I looked it up on YouTube. It's there. You can find it. That same year, though, another great opportunity arose. I'm going to tell it in Claudia's words. Somewhere between promoting the Superbs is when I contacted Shirley Matthews. She was a prominent background singer for many Motown artists and others at the time. She said, I can get you an audition for Ike and Tina Turner. I thought she was kidding, but I did take her up on it. She introduced me to Ike Turner and set up an audition. I passed the audition with Ike, so I left the Superbs behind. Pretty good choice. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, especially joining
2: Tina Turner. I mean, Oh, oh, God, yeah. Claudia would spend the next three years performing with the band. There's so many good videos of them live and the energy and like the mm-hmm. forcefulness, like they were the Ike Gets really I mean Tina such a leader, but to have them behind her, they it was yeah. the perfect
1: mm-hmm. perfect. No one combo. was no one was doing what they were doing then. No. I mean like they have you're right. They have so much energy. Their outfits are on point. Like the dance moves, I couldn't even do that today if I wanted to. Like, Right. <laughs> and imagine like singing at the same time that you're doing that. Yeah.
2: I would be like out of breath in like one minute. Like no exactly. way. Exactly. It's crazy. Exactly. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in a documentary that I've ever seen was in Gimme Shelter mm-hmm. with the Rolling Stones where they're on tour with uh, Ike and Tina and you see Mick watching Tina live on stage and you can see in his face like that he's jealous and like realizes like he's nowhere near as good. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mick, you're not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's just the queen, but like you can fully see it in his face. It's great. It's great. We'll get back to Mick in a minute, actually. But I got another quote from Claudia. She says... Every night with Ike and Tina was a high point. The culture of the Ike and Tina review was when you're on stage, you perform at not 100%, but at least 200%. You had to do that to keep up with Tina. She's such a ball of energy. Believe me, it was like boot training. It was really preparing me for the future. No kidding. Yeah. So being in Ike for three years was really great, but... At the same time, Claudia felt a little bit stifled because it's not her own music. It's not her own band. She's just uh, an actor in it, basically, a member Mm -hmm. in it. One night before a gig, her and Tina ended up getting into an argument. And it was kind of like the final straw, which led Claudia to decide to move on. There's definitely no animosity there. I'm going to read one more quote here. She says... Tina was like a sister, a family member, the most incredible person to learn from. She wasn't really a teacher, but just being in her presence to this day, she's still an amazing woman. I kiss the ground she walks on. Mm. By the time she left Ike and Tina, she was very well known as like the star Iket. I think even in 20 Feet from Stardom, Mick is talking about her and was like, she was known as like, the hottest diket, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone loved her. So she had no trouble whatsoever finding work after this. Over the next decade, she would perform with so many incredible artists, and some of the big, biggest musicians of that time. You got Humble Pie, Grant Parsons, Joe Cocker, Leon Russell, um, Bonnie and Delaney, George Harrison. She did the concert for Mm -hmm. Bangladesh. And she performed on stage with Clapton and Bob Dylan as well. Elton John, the Rolling Stones, I could keep going. (laughs) She, She was in very high demand at the time. And she really absolutely loved being part of this big community of artists. In 1973, she released her first and only solo album, which was titled, Phew! (laughs) Like P-H-E-W, exclamation point. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. It wasn't a huge success financially, but Rolling Stone magazine reviewed it, and they said it was a tour de force from start to finish. So it was a musical accomplishment, if not a money-making one. That same year, she appeared in a Playboy pictorial that was aptly titled Brown Sugar. Mm. So, Yes. In 1969, when she was touring with Ike and Tina, she met the Rolling Stones on that tour that's in Gilmea Shelter. And her and Mick really hit it off and they began dating. So it was nothing, you know, super serious because both of them had crazy schedules. She said, it was an on-off thing because of our different schedules, but we would talk all the time on the phone. He was a lot of fun to be with, although his public persona is quite different to the way he is in private. I found him to be a quiet guy who was very British with good manners, so I was always smitten by his behavior.
1: That's cute. That's a cute descriptor.
3: Very Very British.
2: British. (laughs) Very British, yes. So Mick wrote brown sugar with Claudia in mind. Ah. Yeah.
1: Mm.
2: Mick was also an important conduit because he introduced her to Graham Parsons, and she ended up doing backing vocals for him. And one day when they were in the studio together, he asked, Oh, do you want to come across the street? Like, I'm gonna meet my friend. And she was like, Yeah, sure. And it turned out that that friend was Leon Russell. And they hit it off. And that led to her being offered to tour with Leon and Joe Cocker on this massive Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour that was going on. I've talked about this tour before on the podcast because I did an episode on Rita Coolidge, and she Mm -hmm. was also a background singer for this tour. It was a crazy tour. They had like 50 people with them, all musicians. There'd be like 30 musicians on stage at all times. It was wild. And... Sometimes they would get their own solos. So Claudia had a shining moment in the tour where she would sing Let It Be every night. Nice. Uh Yeah. So Brown Sugar isn't the only song that Claudia was amused for. Leon Russell. it's probably inspired by both Claudia and Rita Coolidge. But his song, A Song For You, was written with kind of both of them in mind. He also wrote another song called This Masquerade, which was inspired by her. So she got two songs out of him. Nice. Interestingly, I mentioned, you know, the Rolling Stones. Mick and Leon Russell wrote Shine a Light together. And that's also been considered partly inspired by her. But I think Mm. also by Brian Jones. It's like a double.
1: Dang! Yeah. Yeah. Go get it, girl.
2: Also, Claudia wrote a song on her solo album with Mick in mind. It was called Not At All. And it's really funny if you if you check it out. She, he was filming Ned Kelly, and, and but she was busy. And she wrote this like jokey song. I'm going to quote. It was really a joke. There was no way anybody could, would, or should deny Mick Jagger. I'm really sincere when I say how incredibly talented he is and how clever he is. He's always been kind to me. We're good friends. We have special places for each other in our minds. So it was like a joke song about like, you ain't so hot. (laughs) Right? (laughs) The opposite, I guess, of what she was feeling. Yeah. If those weren't impressive enough, another ex of Kaladia's wrote a song with her in mind. And that is a Mr. David Bowie. (laughs) What? Yeah. Dang. They met in 1972 at a dinner party and they kind of bonded over their love of the old girl groups and R&B singers. And he wrote a song called Lady Grinning Soul off of Aladdin's Sane album and that's about her. Wow. Wow. Yeah. She says That's when he was wearing dresses and all that. I don't know what attracted me to David, except that he was just so good to look at. (laughs) He was so sweet, quiet, and reserved.
3: That's all you need.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have one more quote about all of the boys that she says. They do have a lot of things alike. They're all driven, all talented. David was probably the most impetuous. He loved surprises. Mick is a more practical joker, and Leon was thoughtful, always pensive. So after Claudia's solo album came out, she still worked a lot as a background singer for many different artists. But that kind of petered out after a while because of her other great passion, which was languages, like I said. So that kind of came into the forefront later in her life. And by the late 80s, she decided that she was going to become a teacher which she still currently does oh i love that she teaches spanish french english and math at yeah mount san antonio college in california Mm. apparently before bowie passed he called claudia and suggested producing an album for her And he was like, I'll do the music, you write the lyrics, let's make this happen. But unfortunately, she didn't even know that David was sick. And Mm. that never came to be. Sadly, if he hadn't passed, maybe we would have gotten Mm -hmm. that album by now. I'm gonna just wrap this up with a quote that I really liked from her. She says, I've looked back over my career. And it's like, wow, I couldn't have planned that. If you're in the right place at the right time and you're ready to seize an opportunity, you get on the horse and go ride. I read somewhere that it's never too late to be what you might have been. Mm. She also says that she's putting together a team of people. She's writing again. She's been laying down some tracks, auditioning bands. She wants to kind of pick up where she left off now. And I also read that she's working on a memoir. So hopefully, Ooh, nice. yeah, I would love to read in all of her words just how incredible her life experience was there's a good interview on YouTube that I recommend people checking out it was called Legends and if you look up Legends Claudia Lanier there's a two-parter where she kind of talks about these guys and the tours that she was on and what it was like to sing with certain artists and everything and you can see her now performing in small places for people and yeah she's a uh, She's amazing. And yeah, I can't believe she teaches that many languages. And math. And math. Like, that's the weird part about that many languages. Language
1: I will never understand, I'll tell you that. Uh,
3: True. Yeah,
2: so
1: there you go. That's Claudia. That's an awesome story.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. Go to Shopify.com slash R E A L M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com
3: slash Realm. I guess that means I'm next. And um, the common denominators here are Playboy and David Bowie. So
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm
2: interested. I'm peaked. Give it to me.
3: Uh, So, I'm going to talk about Ava Cherry, who did just write a memoir. It's called All That Glitters. It, like, just came out in February 2022, if you're listening in the future. Uh, So, go check it out. It's on Amazon. Um, But Ava Cherry was born in 1953. Also don't know her exact birth date. uh, To a family in Woodlawn, which is a working-class neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Her father was a postal worker and a trumpet player. And he worked really long hours. He'd work from four o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock at night. They'd see him for about five minutes. He'd go to sleep, wake up and do it all again. Mm -hmm. Um, But she, she loves, loved her father so much. Like he, she knew that he was making these sacrifices so that she and her sister could go to a private Catholic school and get a good education and like be around music and the culture that they were in, in Chicago, because um, they didn't have to live in Chicago. Uh, and her mother worked in the administration department for Playboy magazine, or Playboy Enterprises.
2: Ooh. Hmm.
3: Uh, so like I said, she was raised to appreciate the value of hard work from her father. And from her mother, she actually got to live in the Playboy mansion for a while.
0: As what? like
3: a 15-year-old. Like, she was very Whoa.
2: underage. Whoa. I bet you she has some stories. I've been watching that seven- part series on the playboy yeah it's it's been hard to watch but
3: she actually i mean this was this the 60s early 60s when she was living there late 60s um in her book she talks about like Hugh was always nice to her he respected her she he never made her do anything that she was uncomfortable with like she never got naked she just put on sexy outfits and carried drinks around for parties but she knew there was a whole other side to the mansion that like she never Mm. went in um but this kind of like whetted her appetite for being around famous people and influential people and realizing that Mm -hmm. she wanted more out of life than just living in the chicago suburbs and so part of living in chicago is that she got to see a lot of shows she lived very close to the regal theater which is where any black artist who was passing through chicago was gonna stop this is where she met stevie wonder i don't really know how she wound up like being besties with them, but they're still really good friends to this day. And I mean, how could you not be inspired to go into music when that's your backyard growing up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, she, but she didn't really want to go into music to begin with. She really wanted to be a model. So after she graduates high school, she doesn't graduate from private Catholic school because one of her friends really upset her, and she begged her begged her parents to leave like her sophomore ish year. So she ended up graduating from public school. uh she put together a book of headshots and tried to find work with a bunch of agencies and she thought about changing her name because she really didn't like that her name was Ava Cherry, but all these modeling agencies were like, "Trust us. You want to keep your unusual name. It'll mm-hmm. make the people like remember you, keep it a great name." It's Mm -hmm. a fantastic name, but it is unique, so I could see how she'd want to change it. Uh, So she ends up moving to New York City for her modeling career, and it doesn't really go much of anywhere, and she has to pick up a job as a cocktail waitress to pay her bills. And she has an agent that's helping her try to book some gigs, and he's the one who first tells her about David Bowie. He was an early fan because he hadn't quite broken in America yet, and he gave her a copy of The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars. She said she immediately listened to it about 50 times in a row. She actually wore her copy out in certain spots because she would play certain songs over and over and over again. Um, And she became obsessed with his aesthetic because she was very into fashion. She was a model um, and just knew he had good style. So like I mentioned, she was a cocktail waitress, And at the time, she was working at the Genesis Nightclub, and she's best friends with Stevie Wonder. So, like, all these things come together at this point. So, Stevie's Wonder's then-girlfriend, who knew Bowie, invited Bowie to the after-party at Genesis after a show. And Bowie ended up showing up. And they met. And he was like, you're really cool. Because she had this really close-cut blonde hair going on, um, which not a lot of black women at the time were sporting. And so, she, he remembered her. Um, And he was like, do you sing? And she said, I can. And he invited her on the spot to come tour with him to Japan.
2: No way. Yes.
3: Like, didn't even hear her. He just thought she was cool and was like, I want you there. Wow. I love that. So she was like, hell yeah. I'm never going to get a better opportunity. She quit her modeling job that she had going on at the time, quit her job as a cocktail waitress, and flew home for a couple weeks to just kind of, like, get things together before going out of the country um and she gets a call that Bowie has I think pneumonia. He was he was really sick and had to cancel the tour. No. Yeah. So obviously she's really upset and she said, "Fine. I'm going to go find him myself." So she borrows 200 or she gets $200 from her mom and flies to Paris. One way ticket to Paris. No plan what she's going to do when she gets there, but she's going to find David Bowie. And so she it has to make money somehow. So she starts knocking on the doors of modeling agencies until she finds someone. She doesn't speak French. She finds someone who can who will take her in. And they're like, you look cool. Not a lot of French girls look like you. Became a very successful model in Paris. Mm. Um, she said that the designers in Paris treated her as a goddess from outer space. She's very tall. She can fit into the model of uh, the sample clothes. She said she never has had to buy clothes in her entire life. Because she's just given samples from designers. Um, and she still has a lot of her like, oh. designer clothes from the 70s. I would wow. love to see some kind of exhibit with all these mm. things in them. Yeah, mm-hmm. It'd be so cool. Uh, so she starts making the modeling rounds through, you know, just small cities like Paris, London, Milan. Featured in some small publications like Vogue and Elle. And after a year... She finds Bowie in Paris. He th- was there working on the album pinups. They spent a week in a castle recording the album together, dating. Um, she describes this as one of the most beautiful times of her life. And the two just vibed and lived in Paris for eight months together. And Magic. she wasn't, yeah, like living in a castle with David Bowie. What else do you want in life? She wasn't singing for him yet but she was there in the studio and so he knew she could sing and wanted to make her the next Josephine Baker and was like, you need to cut Mm. your own songs. I'm going to help you do this. He started talking to his management, hoping that they would sign her to main man records. Um, Mm -hmm. and he ended up putting her in a soul influence trio called the astronauts. Um, They recorded some tracks in London in, like, late 73 and 74, but they didn't really see the light of day until the 1990s. But this project went so well that David Bowie kept these three as the backup singers for Diamond Dogs. Nice. Uh, The Astronauts project, the, like, sound engineer, I don't know, some guy got the master's who shouldn't have had the master's that's the only reason that they were out in the 1990s he put them out without any permission from any of the singers and they didn't get royalties to begin with until like Mm. all three of them sued him so
1: yeah no kidding
3: don't steal uh, ip from people that's the moral of that story so they the she and the two other girls did back up for diamond dogs but her major influence was during the young americans era which was his ninth studio album I mentioned she grew up in Chicago, where all the soul artists were coming through. And she introduced Bowie to this whole new, very American, very black sound. Um, and to make this album, he kept Ava from Diamond Dogs. He also added Robin Clark and Luther Vandross, who was a then-unknown artist, to do the backing vocals. Nice. And perhaps Ava's most iconic backup work is the background vocals of fame. That is her. Oh, yeah, I can hear it. Yep. So she was part of the Young Americans touring band, the backup band, like anything Young Americans, Ava's involved, which she got heavy, heavy approval from critics on this album for her backup ability. Um, And Ava loved Bowie. They dated for six years. He loved her. Um, they did have kind of an interesting relationship where she wasn't allowed to date other people, but Bowie was allowed to sleep with whoever he wanted because he's David Bowie, which is a little bit of, you know, a problem. But she didn't Mm. seem super, she was bothered by it, but like, what are you going to do? And after a while, people started getting sick of seeing her. They'd they'd say snarky things like, oh, you're still around? Because the man went through girlfriends pretty, pretty quickly. Um, Ew. Wow. But she stayed around, and she was kind of like a big fuck you to everyone who doubted Mm -hmm. her and doubted their relationship. Mm -hmm. But eventually, they did break up when he started dating Amon, and Mm. they stayed good friends. Um, The breakup was kind of fueled by Bowie's drugs. He started really getting into drugs really heavy. She -hmm. didn't like it. She never messed with drugs. She she saw how they affected him and didn't like it. Um, So around 1978, they kind of parted ways. So she was left with, what am I going to do now? Well, good for her. Luther Vandross is starting to take off at this time. And they're buddies from the Young Americans days. And so she went on tour with him and started doing work with him. And he was, he was quite the workhorse. She told us when we interviewed her that they would have 10-hour rehearsals for like two weeks before tour started because he wanted everything to be perfect. Mm-hmm. They don't really make shows the way that I think Luther made shows back in this day. He had a very particular eye for the aesthetic and held the girls to incredible standards. They'd have to do complex choreography while singing while wearing fifty pound designer hand beaded dresses. Twenty thousand dollars.
1: Yeah. (laughs) By the way, those dresses were. Twenty thousand a piece. Oh my god. A piece. Yeah. Holy crap. I believe it was a piece. Yeah. Yeah, a a piece.
3: They their outfits cost more than Luther's. Like one dress cost more than Luther's entire wardrobe for the whole tour. Because mm-hmm. he just wore a suit. Like he showed up, he got to yeah. wear a suit. That's fine. Um, and but he was so particular about these dresses that obviously every night they'd step on the ground the trains because they're really long trains, and some of the glass beads would pop off, and so they had several ladies on staff who traveled with the tour who would sew the beads back on each night. They had, like, backup beads, and they'd have to pick them off the stage each night.
2: It's like the dresses are the star of the show.
3: They really are. But she said, like, when they came out in those dresses, the crowd went wild. They were there to see them just as much as they were to see him. Mm-hmm. Like, they got mm-hmm. such a strong reputation of being part of the show. Um, He also made them wear, like, the world's biggest fake eyelashes. The Bambies. The Bambi eyelashes. Um, And one day they ran out. And Luther got mad at them all on stage because he thought that it was their decision to not wear them that night and started yelling at them. And then the makeup artist was like, no, no, we ran out like it wasn't anyone's oh. decision. And so he bought them by the caseload. So they would never run out again.
2: Wow. Uh,
3: but she was really thankful that she had this really tough experience, even though in the moment it wasn't the most fun thing all the time because the show was immaculate. And she learned she got to put like the hard work that her father instilled into her into practice. Um, yeah. It was very different. And You know,
2: you're part of something like really special.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a very different environment than Bowie's shows. Um. Also, just fun, fun fact. While she was touring with Luther, another backup singer in Entourage was Sissy Houston, who would bring little baby Whitney along with her. And mm-hmm. Ava would teach her how to do her hair and her makeup. Wow. Yeah. It's so
2: crazy how so many of these artists have these life experiences before that's like it's meant to be type mm-hmm. of thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. It's crazy. Um, I lost my spot. So Ava and Lisa Fisher were the two main backups singers like they were pretty much the star of the show aside from him and he put so much focus on them that it would actually make everyone else in the cast and crew super jealous um and they were required to sink into the background not outshine them and if he thought they were trying to attract too much attention they'd get yelled at and potentially fired from the crew wow uh in addition to luther vandross she's also sung backup for shaka khan and robert palmer in 2013, she also appeared in 20 Feet from Stardom, but fun fact: they never asked her permission or asked if she wanted to be in it because she she was like, yeah. "I would have gladly been interviewed for it." Had she should have
1: she should have been in that for sure because she like her story is just insane.
3: Yeah, so she would have
1: brought some really good perspective.
3: One of the producers told her later that they quote couldn't get in contact with her. And she's like, well, you didn't try hard enough. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, seriously. come on.
3: It's, it's pretty easy to get find someone who knows someone nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but well, her, we found Lisa Fisher. Yeah. So like the, the two They're of them know each other. They could have yeah. reached out I'm to Ava. BS on it. Me too. Uh, her career isn't all backup work. She has had a solo career as well. She's released four or five albums, I believe. Um, her most well-known is her debut album. It's called Ripe. Three exclamation points.
2: They they love the exclamation points back then.
3: (laughs) I don't know why. They don't translate well when you're speaking about them. Mm -hmm. Um, She has released four other studio albums. Um, But when we talked to her literally last week, she has plans to release a new single like in a couple months. Um, And even at almost 70, she's still out there touring at Bowie festivals and Bowie tributes and making new music. So... Ava's Sounds our hero, her. and if shameless mm-hmm. plug for our podcast, if you want to learn more yeah. about Ava, we just interviewed her, and the episode will be out by the time you're listening to this. So check oh, it out! I can't wait! I can't wait to hear it. And that is Ava Jerry.
2: Wow, these were so good. Uh, oh, always they are, but every time it's fun to share a story. But I love just getting to sit here and like hear mm-hmm. you guys tell me one. Insane. Ah, uh, so good. It was a good choice, background singers. Yes. I think I have an idea for our next theme. Ooh, okay. I was thinking maybe metal, women of metal. Yes, Ooh.
3: yes, 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 yes yes, ready. yes, 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 yes,
1: yes. Oh, right. ho, 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 ho. I okay. got ideas.
3: I actually Fantastic. have an idea for this
2: one. So. Okay. I have a woman I have in mind too, so. We'll brainstorm. We'll, we'll discuss. We'll
1: brainstorm.
2: All, All right, well amazing you guys thanks again as always this is just a pleasure it's just always fun to see your faces and hang out for a bit and talk about music and yeah i agree
1: well we love we love muses i mean we love you and shanti as well we do miss shanti but it's always great to talk with you and hear just about really awesome women in Mm -hmm. rock and roll kicking ass exactly and i know listeners really love these
2: episodes so I think they're going to love this one, and yeah, I'll get started on the next. Yes. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by Lynx O'Leary.
1: Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf wine is a horror, fantasy, medical mystery. Following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world, in which viruses are gods, and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and Laboratory Judaica. The heresies of Rudolf Burntwein have been described as Umberto Eco meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.